Hello, and welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael. I am Gabe. And today we are going to be talking about dessert wines. If you haven't followed us already, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Laidback Lush. Yes. And hopefully if you're listening to us right now, you've already subscribed to one of our many outlets for the podcast. Mm-hmm. So today we are going to be talking about sweeter wines, which typically both Gabe and I don't actually drink a lot of. But we wanted to just do a quick summary of some of the different styles that you can expect, where they're from, a very brief summary of not exactly how they're made, but just kind of what defines them. Profiles. Their profiles, yes. And I think that we're going to have a great time. I'm going to be learning a little bit today because although I have sold many of these things, (laughs) I actually have not taken the W sets like my friend here. <laughs> so, uh, and studied for, I should say. It's not just yeah. about the, the destination. He actually did the journey. Well, I didn't even study all of these in, in that course. A lot of these I did learn about independently as well. Oh, really? Yeah. So what was like your introduction to sweet wine, like your first experience? Um, <laughs> Plum wine, actually. Really? Yeah. I think it was Takara plum wine. If you don't know what plum wine is, it's uh, typically from East Asia, I don't know exactly where it originated from. I, it sounds like something that would have originated from China because I know China uses a lot of plums mm-hmm. for their cooking. I don't know that for sure, so don't quote me. Yeah, um, I do but, not know that for sure either. I was saying mm-hmm because I was listening. <laughs> because it's a podcast. We because just, we podcast. just agree with each other back and forth mm-hmm. for 50 mm-hmm. minutes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> um, that, that is not the case. That's just evident. Actually, I think you've edited out the couple of times that you've had to correct me on things. I, I try not to embarrass either one oh, of us no, in the no. editing process. Everybody's in a learning process. Yeah. I'm the protagonist, you see. I mean, I have also edited out things that I have just been wrong about in episodes, so... <laughs> Again, it's a learning <laughs> process for all of us. Oh gosh! Uh, no, so so plum wine, I think, was my original sweet wine, if I remember correctly. If you haven't tried plum wine, it is normally sweet. The kind I first tried was like really, really sweet. Takara is just like it, it is. It is a fully sweet one. Some other plum wines I've had have been more on the like medium sweet mm-hmm. end of the spectrum, not fully sweet. But that was my introduction. I I do actually still really enjoy it to this day. I haven't tried it in probably over a year now i'm actually very curious i think i might go buy a bottle soon and go back to it and see if i still like it yeah but yeah that was kind of my introduction and a lot of what we're going into today is going to be a lot more sophisticated in terms of complexity and i'm sure wine making quality than that plum wine that I started drinking. So as far as a distinction between the types that we're going to be talking about today, mm-hmm. uh, now we're not going to be talking about Moscato. Moscato is yeah. a, a, a sweeter wine, but mm-hmm. what kind of defines the the character of the wines that we're going to be talking about as opposed to other wines that do have a, a high amount of sugar? So the kind of qualifications that I was trying to nail for these are wines that undergo kind of like a particular wine making production method that is considered to be dessert wines. Uh, Moscato, it depends on who you ask. Some people do consider it a dessert style of wine. Some people consider it an aperitif. Sparkling dessert wines is kind of a thing, like you're much sweeter sparkling wines but since we already covered moscato dosti in the sparkling wines episode i figured it would be redundant to include it here yeah that is normally considered a dessert wine though 
probably more during the summer than in your in your winter months. And Most whatnot. certainly. Most of the ones that we'll be talking about today, though, it, they are going to be a lot thicker. Yes. They're going to be a lot higher in alcohol content. Not always, but in general, in yes. In general. Yeah. A lot of the ones we're going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is with with a lot of these, they they're very rich in texture. Mm-hmm. That's going to come from your sugar and your alcohol. Yeah, those are going to add a lot of body, playing off of one another. Yeah, in a lot of ways. As far as sweetened wines, we know that a lot of the regular types. We were talking about this earlier because we were debating on whether or not to go out and grab them uh, a sweet wine. But we decided we didn't want to spend forty dollars <laughs> exactly <laughs> on one bottle for one episode. Yeah, a lot of your your sweeter wines, as far as like Moscato, uh, Frizzante, that sort of thing, those are going to be fairly cheap. But mm-hmm. once you get into some of the higher quality ones, what, some of these like ports or sherry or whatever, to get a one that's worth drinking, not one that's meant for mixing, mm-hmm. you do have to spend quite a bit of money or cooking or cooking. Yeah, yeah. Which, like, a lot of sherries are used in cooking, which if you've never cooked with sherry, please Oh, it's great. I, I buy it. cheap sherry every once in a while. And you don't need a lot. So no. it lasts forever if you are just buying it to cook. Because it also will stay. Sherry doesn't really go bad. Yeah, the alcohol content in these is very high. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, you, if you're capable of finishing off a bottle in the night, you're, you're feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, not it's recommended a by us. So let's get into these. So the yeah. the main thing and the thing that really seems to get that alcohol content where it is is the process of fortification. Uh, actually, let, let's take one step back real quick. I did want to give kind of a little disclaimer because if you're like us and you don't really drink a lot of sweet wine, I would still recommend if one of the profiles that we give in this episode grabs your attention, maybe go out and grab a bottle because I know kind of after I stopped drinking that plum wine and got into more... I mean, let's be real, heavily tannic reds. That's what I drink 90% of the time. The appeal of sweet wine just kind of left me for a while. Yeah. But then I tried a really good port one time, and I was like, oh, I do like sweet wine, but it has to have a certain profile in order for me to enjoy it. Strangely enough, that's exactly what happened to me. I had a sweet wine once, and it was okay. And then I had uh, a Shiraz while I was working in a vineyard, and that mm-hmm. kind of blew my mind. Yeah. And it wasn't until years later that I was celebrating my brother's birthday with him that I bought him a bottle of 20-year port, Tawny mm-hmm. Port. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, there's there's a something to this. this. <laughs> a dazzling place I never knew. No, it was... Um, really was just phenomenal. We did end up finishing the bottle that night, much to my regret the next morning. But hey, it was his birthday. It was his birthday, though. And he he was visiting from from D.C. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. You got to celebrate that. So uh, anyways, yeah, I I had to get back into it because I'm like, okay, there is a world. It is more complex Mm -hmm. uh, than than I was giving it credit. It's not Moscato. (laughs) Yeah. No no, no shade to Moscato. If you like Moscato, that's perfectly acceptable. Well, and the thing was is I would walk past them in the store and it would be a question mark on the price that I just kind of ignored because I was just like, well, but I know I'm not into it. Mm -hmm. Little did I know I was into it. Yes. I just hadn't experienced it yet. Yeah. Um, So fortified wines. Let's let's do that so fortification can you describe that to me that all fortification really means is that you are adding a neutral grape spirit i can't think of a single wine where it's not a grape spirit you're adding a neutral grape spirit to a wine to raise its abv and 
in order to make a sweet fortified wine, you add this before the fermentation fully stops. What that does is that leaves remaining sugars that the yeast do not consume to make a sweet wine. Sweetened wines are a thing, but that is typically for... I notice this a lot, particularly with like off dry to medium sweet table reds, where you're adding typically some kind of grape concentrate or grape juice, rectified concentrated grape must, technically speaking, or uh, RCGM, which is basically just, uh, you know, concentrated grape juice that you've squeezed out of grapes to make a sweet wine without um, maybe a lot of finesse. I'll say that. Mm. And this is typically used for more high volume and expensive production of, again, I only really have seen this with like sweet table reds or off dry table reds. Some whites might use this, but where the sugar really is the point. Yeah. But for a fortified wine, you want to keep the natural sugars that were already in those grapes mm. intact to give the wine the sweetness that you think it needs. You're adding it to stop the yeast from eating up all that sugar. Gotcha. So the, so the alcohol content will actually prevent the yeast from going, or it'll halt yeah. the process in some way? So yeast are pretty hardy from an um, industrial strain perspective now, but yeast are pretty weak to two things in particular. That is actually three things that will play into all of these wines to a degree. Yeast cannot survive in too high of a sugar content solution solution yes solution that's what i'm looking for thank you you're welcome they just they consume too much and die essentially uh yeast cannot survive in too high of a alcoholic environment if there's too much alcohol it'll kill the yeast off which is ironic because alcohol is what they produce and also temperature if it's too hot it can just kill the yeast altogether if it's too cold it'll make them go dormant which we briefly mentioned in our champagne episode about how the actual temperature of the area is what ended up halting fermentation. Yes. So now that we know kind of the technique of how these fermentation processes halted, we know that the sweetness is retained by actually adding in this alcohol mm -hmm. into the solution. Yeah, for fortified dessert wines, yes. So what sort of wines employ this method? So first off, we have port. Yes. As you already mentioned, you have tried port. I have tried port. I imagine if you're listening... There's a good chance you've had port. It's, I would say it's one of the more popular styles of dessert wine or just fortified wines in general. So port is going to be a blend of white and red grapes are allowed in the Douro region. That's the region it comes from. Portugal. Yeah. Port. Portugal. That's how you can remember what country it comes from. Typically, though, it's going to be primarily red grapes in a blend. Um, and these By are By the way, if, you, if you've never looked up the growing region of Douro... It's just the most beautiful place. Mm -hmm. Like, if there is anywhere that I want to visit, I want to go to Portugal specifically yeah. to visit Quinta dos Carvalhas' property on the river. Yeah, and uh, again, we won't be going super into production techniques in this episode. We're kind of thinking in the future we want to break these up into individual episodes because port production, the production for all these wines, really, It if we were to go in-depth, we would be here for five hours. Yeah. So. 
Um, with port, though, you have uh, the grape Tariga Nacional. We've that's mentioned kind of that one, one of your primary ones in that yeah. blend, yeah. And they use kind of other grapes in the area uh, as seasoning for that. Yeah, uh, there's a crazy amount of grapes that are allowed legally in, in oh, port. Yeah. What sort of a profile would you describe port as having? So there's kind of two major profiles of port that I would break down. So I would have our ruby styles, mm-hmm. which are going to have... Very little oak influence. These are going to be more about your primary red fruits in particular. Port tends to be on the red fruit side of things. Some chocolate starting to get in. Some Maybe some caramel flavors, but not a ton. That tends to come from more oxidative aging. Ruby styles can be ruby port, which is just a style of port. Moving on from ruby to other styles that... Tend to keep this profile, though, you have your late bottled vintage and your vintage ports, which are not really oxidatively aged either. Which will be abbreviated LBV on the bottle. That's what you'll see on the bottle, correct. And those are going to, again, keep a lot more of the primary character of these grapes intact, but still be sweet. However, Tawny Ports, which is the other style I would break down, is going to be sweeter on average, and these are oxidatively aged. So what do I mean by that? These see extensive oak aging, and particularly old oak. Port as a whole doesn't really look for new oak. Yeah, they don't want so much spice characteristic. Yes, they're not looking for flavors from the oak barrels. They're looking from flavors from the oxygen interplay between the wine and the barrel and... The wine itself. Or, and, well, and, the, yes, the, the wine with the oxygen coming into the barrel, sorry. Yeah, which we've talked about before, how barrel aging, it's it's not that it actually keeps it from coming into contact with oxygen. It slows down the oxygen contact over yes. a large surface area so that they're able to interplay and develop in a sophisticated manner. Mm-hmm. So tawnies are typically broken down by an age indicator. So 10, 20, and 30 year are kind of your most common ones. You will also see tawnies without an age indicator. That just means they're very young. Comparatively, they're very young. They still typically see several years at least in barrel. Tawny is named really after the color, as is ruby. Ruby ports tend to be a very bright red. Tawny tends to be just that, orangish brown to fully brown wines. And these are going to have those oxidative characteristics. So oxidative is going to be like nutty characteristics. So more for for the wines, all the wines we'll be talking about, uh, pecans and walnuts. Almond can be a nutty flavor, but that tends to be something that shows up more in white wines that are not fortified or aged specifically long as a tertiary characteristic from bottle aging. Mm -hmm. But from this kind of aging, you will get some pecans, some walnut. Some baked fruits, that primary character is going to go away. That's mostly what I notice whenever I have a a decent port. Yes. Uh, Chocolate, caramel, toffee, these more confected almost characteristics. and Dried fig. Yeah. uh, Raisin Mm -hmm. even. Raisin, yes. Raisin, Ruby can even show raisin as well. Raisin is almost always a dead ringer for me and blind tastings for port. If I smell raisin, I almost immediately, if the color and everything else matches, I will immediately go to port. So that's port in a nutshell. 
Then we uh, jump the border over into Spain, and we go to Sherry. Now, Sherry's a little different. Yes. Again, we're not going into production. Sherry, Sherry production, in my opinion, is actually extremely interesting. I love Sherry production. Poor production as well is very interesting, but Sherry has a very interesting something yeah. called the Solaris system. We Which we definitely need to to describe in a later episode. I may yeah. have to do an illustration of that because yeah, it's, it, it's, it's actually pretty complex. It's complex, but it's really cool, and it's a very interesting idea. I would love to just pick the brain of the person that thought that system up. Now, there are a couple of beers that actually use that style of aging i did not know that yeah i'll have to i'll have to okay. look them up again i can't quite remember the names yet well stay tuned for a solera episode apparently or at least a, or at bare minimum a sherry episode um because yeah it, it's a really cool system but that's beside what we're really going into in this episode so for sherry your sweet styles are going to be px which stands for pedro jimenez or muscat wines i don't remember exactly which kind of muscat this is but it is a kind of muscat which you will notice over the course of this episode kind of tends to pop up a lot the muscat family of grapes tend to lend themselves very well to sweeter styles of wine these are your naturally sweet styles of sherry they are sun-dried normally uh just kind of like out in like a platform yeah, which, which makes sense. The less liquid that there actually is because your grapes are primarily sugar and water. Those are the, the primary things. The rest of it is a, a mixture of different types of compounds that are, are aromatic or whatever. Yeah. But if you are removing the water, then you're concentrating the sugars. And that's what you're doing for this specific or these two specific styles of sherries. I will say your Pedro Jimenez or your PX wines are going to be much more common than the Muscat kind of sherry. Mm. Muscat sherries are very rare. So these are fortified, but they are so concentrated in their sugars that the yeast struggles to ferment at all. Because like we mentioned, a high sugar content can also end up yeah, it, it just overpowers yeast. the yeast. Mm. The, the yeast just can't keep up. It's like being dropped in a vat of ice cream when you're an 11 year old child. That's actually like a, that's a really good metaphor. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> you're trying to, but there's just a lot here. Mm -hmm. And it, these will also go into oxidative aging in the Solera system, mm. which again, yeah. we won't be getting into here. But these will tend to show notes of dried coffee or licorice for your Pedro Jimenez or your PX. For your Muscat varieties, dried citrus is going to kind of be what shows up here. And keep in mind that particularly orange peel from Muscat. That shows in many, many, many Muscat predominant wines. Which makes this preferable for a lot of cocktail mixes. Yes. Then we move on to our cream sherries, which Michael, I know, particularly is fond of. I love cream sherries. Uh, cream sherries, they're going to have a little bit more of a velvety texture to them. Whenever I did tastings with sherry, this was my favorite thing because I would actually pair it with chocolate, specifically yeah. milk, chocolate, uh, anything with hazelnut. Mm -hmm. It was able to meld very well with the flavors. You get a lot of complexity with it. Uh, I see you have leather as one of the things that you have here, and that, that is actually right on point with that. But mm -hmm. you get a, a good deal of nuttiness. Yeah. You get a lot of these different dried fruit notes. Mm -hmm. I would even go into notes like papaya. I've had some come across as kind of like dried mango. Mm -hmm. A lot of these different kind of like dried fruit flavors. It is a very complex 
sweet, yes, but very complex flavor that I find it delightful, and a lot of my customers did too. Yeah, so how cream sherries are made, again, from a very macro perspective, is there a wine that is the base wine that you are adding to with a Pedro Jimenez sweet wine to get it to a sweet cream sherry. The base wine has already undergone a Solera system to full dryness. Yeah. So that's kind of where that leather note comes from. That tends to be a tertiary characteristic in dry wines. So that can come into play because you are adding in this Pedro Jimenez wine after this wine has already completed its fermentation and yeah. its aging and everything like that. You're only adding this wine for sweetness to get that cream characteristic. Which allows the interplay of the dry and the sweet to kind of give you, I, I hesitate to say best of both worlds because it is a cliche to say that, but mm -hmm. it really I is. I think it's accurate. It's accurate. Yeah. You get a lot of these complex notes that are the result of a, of a full fermentation while at the same time having this sweetness there that allows it to be a dessert wine mm -hmm. it's my preference outside of a dry sherry because again i i'm i'm not super crazy about sherry by itself but a cream See, sherry or I, a dry I love sherry you know sherries in particular mm. but it, we'll do a sherry episode i we, promise we do need road. to do a um, sherry episode because pheno sherries are wild they can be very saline they can be like drinking iodine but i love them personally you know what so. we need to do we need to do a, a sherry episode where you also get to whip out your cheesemonger skills because oh, sherries yeah. go fantastically with different yeah. types of cheeses. And those of you who do not know, Gabe... I, I used uh, to be a cheesemonger, yeah. He was a cheesemonger. <laughs> I unfortunately still have not developed a taste for blue cheese in particular. But... I love blue cheese, though, so that's on the menu. <laughs> yeah. I do like Valdion. I like your more dry, crumbly blue cheeses, but the like gorgonzolas and the creamy styles mm. are not really my thing. Oh, and those are my those are my things. But so. no, I'm I'm so down for that. Let's actually let's commit to that. Uh, yeah. Maybe not next episode. Who we don't really know when that'll be, but down the road, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, we'll we're be gonna doing that. we're gonna do that. I'm I'm all into this. So uh, moving on from our sherries. same country, technically speaking, uh, but on an island that is a Spanish territory madeira madeira is a lot less known i would say than port and sherry but it is considered one of the great fortified wines of the wine world i love madeira for me madeira is the perfect marriage in between like a fino and an oloroso sherry personally it depends on what grape you're you're using again that's kind of beyond the scope of this episode but for madeira what are we looking at we are looking at a very highly oxidized wine. Madeira is subjected essentially to all the things that are supposed to destroy a wine. They are subjected to very high heat, and they are subjected to very high oxidation levels. If I'm not mistaken, part of the reason why this style even came about was because of transport yes, complications. You, you, you are 100% correct. It came from long voyages for white wines before we knew how chemistry worked <laughs> and it ended up being something that people got a taste for and yeah. so then it was just like okay so how do we destroy this wine exactly the mm -hmm. right way 
No, I, I, we are doing a Madeira episode. I don't care what your opinion is on this, Michael, <laughs> uh, because Madeira is so interesting from a winemaking perspective. I, I have to talk about it. Well, I'm surprisingly sorry. enough, <laughs> although I have sold Madeira, I have never tried a Madeira. So this yeah. will be a, vir- a, a virgin voyage for me. Yeah. So I see what you did there. Nice. Yeah. yeah um, so it's an alliteration and a historical reference. And thank a you reference very much. To what we've been talking about. Oh, boy. Uh, so Madeira, what is it? As we just said, it's highly oxidized. It's treated with heat intentionally. So it results in a wine that is basically all tertiary characteristics. It's nutty, particularly walnuts and pecans. Again, dried fruits, some, it depends on the grape that you're using, but it can even get a little saline. That's why I say it's kind Mm. of like a marriage in between a Fino sherry and an Oloroso. It can have lighter notes that you don't really expect from this kind of wine that come into play. Madeira does have dry and sweet styles. So the sweet styles are going to be your rainwaters. There are four primary grapes grown in Madeira. There is uh, Verdello, Sarsal, and then the two sweet styles are grapes that tend to make sweet styles, which is Blal and Malmsey. Mm. So rainwater, Blal, and Malmsey are going to be your you know, sweeter styles. If you do see Verdello or Sarsal, that will be your drier styles normally mm. of Madeira. Do you have a preference between the two? <sighs> Not, I, I genuinely can't really say because each one of these grapes has a very unique profile. Rainwater Madeira is fine. Granted, I've only had one rainwater. I do really like Bois and I really like. Verdello would be my two ones that I've tried that I've really enjoyed so far. Uh, again, Verdello is a more dry style normally, but it tends to have some really interesting floral aromatics going on, which is what I like about it. So how do people normally consume that? Because port people will typically consume by itself. Sherry mm-hmm. can be used as a mixer, a cooking agent, or yeah. or by itself it can be consumed. Mm-hmm. But how would you describe Madeira's use? <sighs> um, It's a great food wine. Because it has enough complexity to stand up to heavier dishes. These sweeter styles are considered a dessert style, so they are typically meant to be drunk on their own, at least to my knowledge. So I would kind of treat these sweeter styles as a port. Honestly, I would even treat the drier styles more as a port, where it's just kind of a thing you drink on your own or on its own, because it's so complex already. And I will say these are so incredibly rich. Hmm. you don't need a lot i would say do half glasses of madeira it'll last in your fridge for a long time anyway because it's already been subjected to so much and it's winemaking that you don't have to worry about going bad on you take your time with madeira yeah maybe pair it with like if you were going to do something something very light uh your your basic oiled uh oiled baguette yeah that sort of thing i would go that or i would go kind of in the complete opposite direction uh, I do think that's good, but I would say very complex cheeses, particularly like... Oh, so um, you think that that would pair well with that? If it's a drier style, um, particularly like your aged goudas and cheddars, I think would do very well with mm-hmm. some of the drier styles of Madeira. So it's like after dinner's over, mm-hmm. you lay out the cheese spread and then you you hand people some Madeira. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And I think they'll have a good time. Hey, <laughs> I'm I'm down with that. Yeah. So moving on from Madeira to the next fortified style, we have Vin du Naturel or VDN wines. These are 
this is kind of a catch-all term for a wide variety of wines from a wide variety of regions. These are uh, grapes that are finished with a neutral grape, or these are grapes. These are wines that are finished with a neutral grape brandy. It normally comes out of France, the styles that um, are considered VDN that I have seen, at least. They can be white or red. There's one from Grenache that I forget which region. Uh, there's a French region that does one with Grenache that I'm actually very interested to try because, uh, you know, that's a yeah. very different profile than Muscat. No, that would be very interesting. And these are sweet. So these are considered dessert styles. These are all sweet to my knowledge. And they can have a range of profiles. Mm -hmm. So for your Muscat de Bombes de Venise, which is, again, coming from France, this is going to be your youthful, they are trying really hard to preserve all of the primary characteristics of the muscat grape in this they're fortifying it early on in fermentation to preserve a lot of sugar it is aged a little bit but it is not oxidatively aged mm. to prevent again anything from interrupting this primary fruit character think of this as going to be very citrusy very floral very aromatic and very sweet style of wine hmm. on the opposite end from the same grape we have our rutherglen muscats this comes out of australia this is also a fortified style of wine but this is fortified after most of the fermentation has already been done it's still sweet don't get me wrong but this goes into barrel and it's aged for years hmm. some of these can go if I remember correctly, like 10, 20 years. Oh, wow. What, what does that do to the flavor? So this makes a very oxidative and complex wine. So tons of tertiary flavors yeah, all over the place. Basically, like everything we've already listed, your nutty flavors, caramel, coffee, chocolate, dried fruits or baked fruits, just really like intense all of that just think all very intense just yeah. terpenes unstable going mm -hmm. all over the place yeah and these wines are also very expensive oh really? Uh, well so because of i mean just the way that they're produced and also the amount of aging that goes into them they are very expensive yeah if you can ever get your hands on a bottle please share with us <laughs> <laughs> accepting samples <laughs> yes uh feel free to send us samples if you're ever able to get your hands on this so moving on to Marsala, uh, this is made with a variety of grapes. Uh, mm -hmm. What would you describe as being kind of the thing that distinguishes Marsala from the other types of wine that we've been looking at, though? Um, so in a particular style of Marsala, I want to say it's amber. There is a cooked grape that is used for the color adjustment on that, I believe, to add flavor as well. I'm really sorry I forgot to write down the name of the grape itself, but there is a grape that's used that is cooked to help with that process. Marsala is also much more widely known, as I'm sure you listening probably know, as a cooking wine than a drinking wine. And I, in general, I would say that is true, but these sweeter styles are considered dessert wines. However, and this is another um, differentiation, I guess, between these wines and the other wines we're talking about is the sweeter styles of Marsala are often, even though they are considered to be dessert wines, they're also typically listed as aperitifs. So mm -hmm. that means that they are traditionally drunk either before a meal or in between courses of a meal. 
So Marsala also does undergo oxidative aging. You will typically get some vanilla, some brown sugar, some apricot characteristics from Marsala. I personally have not had a sweet Marsala before. I have had Marsala chicken. It's kind of, I think, the the go-to. The go-to, yeah. yeah. But I have not had it on its own. After reading up on it, I am very curious to try. Part of the way it's characterized is by its color, as I said. So it kind of goes from, from what I understand, a a red wine to a amber to a more brown wine, almost like what we were talking about with our tawny ports versus our ruby ports. Mm-hmm. For Marsala... Seco Marsala is the driest legal definition style, and that can go up to 40 grams a liter. So that's already fairly sweet, but that's not really considered to be the sweet styles of Marsala. The sweet styles of Marsala are going to be your semi-seco and your dolce styles. Mm -hmm. So that's what to look for on the label if you do want to try a sweet style of Marsala. And uh, this comes out of Italy. I, yeah. I don't think I said that, but that comes out of Italy. And this profile is is very different from a lot of the ones that we've discussed. Consume with caution. This does not have the same types of fruit characteristics as the other ones, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I think a lot of that comes from its production and some of these cooked grapes that are thrown in during yeah. the production process and whatnot. Also, where the fermentation, because again, this is fortified, this is under fortified wines, uh, where you interrupt that fermentation is going to determine the final sweetness of the wine. Yeah. Now, as far as there are a couple of these that are going to be a little bit more on the thick side, they're a little bit stickier, and the process is not through fortification, but there are many different processes that can be used in order to make our, our other styles that are still considered dessert wines. Mm-hmm. So with these, you have a lot of sugar in the grapes, and there's too much for the yeast to fully ferment. Yeah. They will actually prevent the yeast from doing the full fermentation mm-hmm. by chilling these wines in yeah. many cases. Yeah, if, if it continues past what the winemaker wants, yeah. So what are, what are some of the styles that we're looking at here? So the first one would be your pasito method, which translates to straw mats. Pasito, you probably, if you're hip to Italian, peg that as an Italian word. It is an Italian word, but it's used all over the world. This is basically where you leave picked bunches out to dry. Sometimes, um, particularly for the example of wine we'll be talking about, the bunches are hung up to dry in a shed or something indoors. You're basically just trying to have the grapes resonate from just being off the vine and being either traditionally it was laid out on straw mats. That's where that name comes from or hung up or what have you. Obviously, in modern facilities, there's going to be different methods of drying these grapes out. Yeah, because you don't want climate controlled. Yeah, you don't want them to get moldy or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah, you are not looking for any noble rot, which we'll be getting into later on for these wines. This method Again, it's mainly just trying to get some of the water out of these wines, kind of like we were talking about with our PX and our Muscat sherries, Mm -hmm. where they're sun-dried. However, these are not sun-dried. These are dried indoors. That's a very um, hallmark aspect of this method is it's done indoors, not in the sun. So you're not getting – there will be some raisinated flavors in here, but not nearly to the degree that some of those sherry styles. Yeah, because there are still compounds being developed even after the grapes are – taken off of the mm-hmm. vines correct yeah um, and so depending on what they're having to fight off really because anytime that you're looking at grapes 
What it has to fight off is typically what defines the types of compounds that are going to be found inside mm-hmm. of them. So yeah. in this case, you're actually removing them from one of the stressors of the grapes themselves in order to see this drying happen. Yeah, so you're kind of removing that, hopefully, potential for mold or, or noble rot to set mm-hmm. in in order to just have natural water extraction from a, a drier indoor climate. So the the notable style for this wine for me personally is the Reciotto della Valpolicella DOCG. This is a DOCG wine in Italy. If you remember from last episode, that just means it has very strict legal definitions. It's at the top of the appellation system. So there's a lot controlled about this wine for quality and control. Guaranteed and case. guaranteed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so this is going to be primarily the Corvina grape. There are two or three other grapes that can be added in this, but Corvina is going to be the dominant grape in all these wines. It's going to give you a character of dried red berries. In particular, Corvina tends to show red fruit, and it does tend to be a little bit on the tartar, more berry end of things. And some chocolate and vanilla. Uh, I really like these wines, actually. I don't know if you've ever had one of these wines. I have. Uh, these are... They're not necessarily my favorite, I will say that, but I do really enjoy them for what they are. Uh, And when you get high-quality ones, they're very enjoyable. You know, the thing is, I actually haven't had this specific style of dessert wine. This is not something that I've come across. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure if... Well, I'm sure that we sold it. Yeah. I don't think I ever came across it, though. That wouldn't really surprise me. It's not a very, in the States at least, widely known or recognized style of wine. You know, these are going to be, again, a style of wine where there's so many concentrated sugars in these grapes that the yeast will just struggle to ripen fully, or not ripen fully, to ferment fully. And sometimes for this method, they will cool it down to preserve the natural sugars and then, you know, filter it or inoculate it with SO2 to kill off any remaining yeast after it's cooled down so it doesn't continue to ferment once it warms back up again. Now, the next one that we're going to be talking about, I'm actually pretty interested in simply because of the fact that we're getting some new wine regions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so specifically, we were talking about earlier, uh, Brighton is mm-hmm. now going to be producing some yeah. some wines. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if we're not going to see more ice wines coming out of our European neighbors, specifically in regions that previously could not house. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Brighton could because Brighton is so close to the ocean that I don't mm. know if I imagine that such a large body of water would prevent the sudden freezes that are kind of needed for ice wine mm. in Brighton. I'm not sure. I would need to look at the maps. Um, keep a pin in that for a future episode, potentially, is, I guess. <laughs> but that does bring us to ice wines yes. and their defining characteristic being that they are kept on the vines until mm-hmm. the first freeze. Yes. This concentrates a lot of the sugars inside of the uh, inside of the grapes themselves. Mm-hmm. And the water being frozen, it concentrates that. Yeah. So this is typically done in your areas of Canada, Germany, Austria, and it's typically going to be done with either Riesling or Vidal. These wines, I, I actually love ice wine. Yeah. Um, so going back a little bit to you talked about concentrating from freezing, concentrating the sugars from freezing, I should say. The reason that that concentrates the sugars is these wines are still pressed when they're frozen. A large pot of grapes is water, just yeah. like the human body. So when you press a frozen grape, you're getting less water 
more concentrated yeah. sugar grape juice or sugars in the grape juice i should say because what's happening is you have that water being frozen it actually squeezes out those sugars mm-hmm. like if you've ever studied anything about our our lovely glaciers when the water is frozen the salt is actually squeezed out from the ice itself Mm -hmm. specifically water when it's frozen it does not like having other compounds inside of it yeah so it'll it'll squeeze them out so then instead of pressing that water out you're actually having that solution of sugary water coming out in a higher concentration while the rest of the pure water is crushed as a near solid. Mm -hmm. This also will limit the skin contact, obviously. You're not going to have that involved in the fermentation process. This is not oxidative at all. There's no skin contact, really. There is kind of a cheaper way to do this where uh, you pick your grapes when they're not frozen and then you freeze them them in the facility. Again, this is a cheaper way, and I do not have enough experience with ice wines to say one way or the other on this. Some people swear up and down that you can taste the difference between the naturally frozen grapes and the artificially frozen grapes. I would I probably say that has more to do with facility than anything else. Yeah. If, if there is a difference, I have not had enough to really be able to say one way or another. Yeah, I I can't really tell you personally. But just thinking as far as environmental factors are concerned, I could see a a sterilized facility imparting a little bit of a different flavor to something than hyper-chilled outdoor environment. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. That's a curiosity that I'm going to have to explore. And also your grapes are just inevitably going to oxidize in transit to the facility itself. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that plays something into it. So I, I again, I don't know. I, I would actually be curious to do an experiment on this. So these, again, like I said, these are all about retaining all the varietal character, kind of like that Vomes de Benice that we talked about earlier, even though it's not fortified, obviously. This is all about the youthful flavors. They tend to be very honeyed in flavor, very bright fruit. It, I like ice wine. I know you said you, you enjoy them. My own opinion is uh, I, I like them. They are a little cloying for me personally. I tend to go more for darker sweet wines. So tawny ports, uh, cream mm. sherries or PX sherries. Madeiras. I, I, as I said, I love Madeira. I tend to go for the more oxidative styles of dessert wines. Again, I, I do enjoy these wines. They're just not what I really gravitate to. Um, and they can be kind of hard to come by because they do require such specific growing conditions to be natural ice wines. They're not made every year in a lot of parts of the world. As you said, Canada and Germany and Austria are going to be your primary places that they come out of. But even there, it's not always possible every single year. So these wines can be hard to come by, or at least the higher quality versions of these wines. But they are good. They are good. And if you are, I would say particularly if you are a white wine drinker that's curious about dessert wines, this would be a good place to start from if you can get your hands on it. Yeah. Now, other uh, types of Riesling in particular that I know of that will be able to be or or have a sweeter style would be your late harvest. Mm-hmm. I love late harvest Rieslings myself. I love the kind of overripe character that they're able to present. Yeah. Specifically, Dr. Lucent and Dr. Heidemann 
and a lot of doctors out of Germany for some reason. And they all start vineyards. They all start vineyards yeah. once they're done. I, I forget which one was the neurosurgeon. Um, but both of them have a late bottled harvest or a late harvest mm-hmm. variety that is just absolutely delicious. So late harvest or uh, passerage, I guess, is how you pronounce this word. <laughs> the, the clue is in the name. Yeah, it's in the name. These are grapes that are left on the vine well into autumn. Now, I will say these, again, are very like your ice wines dependent on climate conditions these wines are not possible everywhere in the world alsace germany like you said basically regions where you have long and dry autumns are where these wines are possible because if you have too much moisture in the air rot can start to set in or mold mildew powdery gray white whatever that can start to set disgusting yeah so these wines are, again, highly dependent on the climate, but like you said, they tend to produce very concentrated, overripe flavors because they're just left to hang on the vine for an extended period past when they initially got ripe. Like you said, Riesling is really good for this. Uh, Gewürztraminer can be very good for this. Pinot Gris can be very good for this. If you've never had an Alsace Gewürztraminer, that would do be, it. Do it. <laughs> just do, do it. it. <laughs> It's as simple as that. Yeah. So I have not had a late harvest from the old world now that I think about it. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, they're they're kind of, they're not super common. No, they're not. Uh, be, again, they're not but possible every year. If I'm not mistaken, also, it's it's just not quite the style that a lot of the places in the old world really want to yeah. be doing in the first place. It, it's a big thing in Alsace, but... Outside of that, because in Germany, you're typically going to, if you have late harvest wines, it's going to go straight into your Pradikat system, and it will not be called a late harvest wine. And if you don't know what the Pradikat system is, um, we'll, we'll cover that in the future. That, that, the <laughs> that's product, a little bit of a... a it's, it's complicated. Yeah, that's a, that's a loaded can of worms that's yeah. bigger on the inside. Uh, I do want to start doing some wine law episodes coming up, so definitely keep an ear out for that. Simply to navigate certain bottles especially between countries you really do need to understand the laws that are between them so yeah we Mm -hmm. do need to do an episode on that yeah what the the qualifications are based off of yeah because like if you go for a a a reserva from spain that is a whole lot different than if you're going for a reserva from california or chile exactly there's just very different laws that are involved Mm -hmm. or laws in the first place depending on where you're buying yeah sometimes it's literally (laughs) just a word yeah that kind of covers late harvest. These are very rich, very concentrated, but not, again, not oxidatively aged normally. And these typically undergo a standard fermentation. But again, there's so much sugar that it will not complete to full dryness. These are, I would say, probably the least sweet out of any of the styles that we've talked about Absolutely. on average. These are more in your off dry to medium sweet. And you can actually get fairly Camps. high quality ones for for a lot less than than the price of some of the other mm-hmm. uh, fortified styles that we yeah. mentioned. I would say if you again, we keep saying Alsace, but Alsace really is known for these wines. Um, Albrecht or Trimbach, if you can find a late harvest. I don't know if they really do late harvest, but I do know those producers out of Alsace, and I do trust them. 
So if you do happen to see a bottle from either of them with late harvest and you're curious, definitely give it a try. You know, it's actually funny. Gewurztraminer is a French grape with a German name. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, uh, lot of occupation history in the past. Yes. Um, but yeah, again, in, in places where you're not having that level of humidity that's going to cause your mold. But there is actually a type of mold that you do want in some of your other styles. So Michael's talking about Noble Rot, which uh, you might or might not have heard of. Uh, it kind of seems to be 50-50 on people that I know that are like kind of into wine but not super into wine. Because yeah, I'm much more familiar with the cellar molds that you want. Okay, so Noble Rot is squarely in the vineyard. So this is, I believe, technically speaking, it's Gray Rot, if I remember correctly. It is very controlled Noble Rot. The technical academic name for noble rot is botrytis cinera so if you hear botrytized for a wine that's what that means that means noble rot you want to know something funny yes there was a uh, competition thing that i went to as part of our company morale i guess we had to do a bunch of different um a bunch of different tastings and then we were given scrabble pieces the more questions that we answered mm -hmm. and i was not getting like any vowels whatsoever <laughs> oh, um, no. but if we spelled out a word yeah then we could actually get a prize mm -hmm. and so i actually was able to not only spell out botrytis but also bredonomyces nice yeah yeah you do want to know what i won uh, uh a bottle of um i don't want to call out anyone an under 10 bottle i'll say that no i got a uh a light bulb shaped container of paper clips mm, okay well uh let's move on because clearly <laughs> this was a traumatic experience <laughs> no, for you <laughs> i i spelt out both botrytis and bredonomyces <laughs> and i got a i got a light bulb shaped container oh. of paper clips what was I supposed to do with that? This is why Michael does not work for that company anymore. Uh, <laughs> this is one of the many reasons. But yes, so, so Botrytis Scenaria. Yes. So this is a mold, as I said, uh, a gray mold. I, I really hope I'm remembering that correctly. I do believe it's gray mold. This is a literal mold that infects grapes in the vineyard. And it needs very, very specific conditions in order to be cultivated correctly. Because... If it's not, it will turn into just gray rot, and it'll ruin a harvest. So what does it need? It needs the ideal balance of moisture and dryness. So what this translates to in a vineyard context, usually it means morning mists from a nearby body of water. I'm going to say California because a lot of people are more familiar with it. Noble rot isn't really a thing in California. I do want to be very clear on that. But... In certain parts of California, there are morning mists from rivers that come up when the day heat kicks in, when the sun starts shining, it'll start to get these mists out from bodies of water that cool the grapes off. In areas like uh, Barsac and Sauterne, which we'll be talking about here in a second in France, this comes from a body of water and it, it coats the grapes in moisture and it promotes the growth of this mold. But then during the day... It's clear and sunny. Yeah. That mist goes away and the sun keeps the mold from spreading too fast too quickly and ruining the grapes. The reason this mold is important is A, it imparts its own flavor into the wine. The mold does go into fermentation. 
Uh, it's not harmful. Don't don't worry. It's not harmful to you. Maybe if you're sensitive to mold, it might. I don't think it is, though. I've to not my knowledge. heard of, of anybody I, being particularly complications from it. Yeah, yeah. But just know uh, to be aware, I guess. But and to be perfectly clear, like this, we're not talking about like a gentle mist in the morning. Like this mist fogs up mountains. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's a fog. It's, it's like a full-on it's fog. Mountains. Yeah. It is many hundreds of feet up. Mm-hmm. Into these areas, it fills valleys and makes the landscape look flat. Yeah. This mold infects the grapes, and what it does is the filaments from the mold penetrate the grape skins and allow water evaporation to happen from the grapes themselves. So that is what's concentrating our sugars in so this instance. So we still have the grapes on the vines receiving nutrients and even growing, mm-hmm. uh, being filled with those nutrients. Um, They might not be growing for the full time that the rot has infected the grapes Precisely. because the rot tends to come in at the very end of harvest season. So the, the rot is sitting there. It makes the skin much more permeable. Mm-hmm. And so it's just... So water is getting shrinking out. Shrinking these grapes. Yes allowing for that water to evaporate. Mm -hmm. The botrytis is hardly ever, if ever, uniform in how it infects grapes. So these wines are very expensive to produce because they require a lot of hand harvesting over an extended period of time Mm. from highly trained people that go into the vineyard every day even to pick the correct berries that are at the perfect amount of infection versus not infected ratio for the grapes. That to, explains a lot. To go into the winery to then be turned into wine. Because with this, you also have a lot of variance from year to year on what the flavor profiles of these sauternes are going to be. And they're not made every year either. Yeah. Because conditions don't always match up for what needs to happen. Because we, so we had a lot of customers that would come in for sauternes and they were so specific mm-hmm. on which ones that yeah. they, they wanted. It was always, oh, I want the 2014. And if it's not the 2014, then mm-hmm. I am not, I am not going to buy any other year because mm-hmm. that's what I want. That's what I that, want. That had the flavor profile. And the flavor profiles from year to year, if they're produced, are so specific that mm-hmm. if a person really does fall in love with one, that's the one they yeah. want. I will say, so Noble Rot wines, once you smell a couple, it's very easy to identify. It's a very, um, my boss calls it orange marmalade. I think that's a really good way to put it. I would say um, candied orange peel, but also kind of a dusty aroma, almost kind of like a like a cement basement. Mm. That kind of dank, uh, dank might not be the kind right Kind of funky. Word. Not even funky, just like that very... Um, minerally dusty smell of cement is Mm. kind of how it reads to me as a high tone but it does also have a very very intense citrus peel aroma to it as well that's why she says orange marmalade and again i do agree with that yeah if i'm not mistaken the the acid content on these is high enough to balance out a lot of the sweetness so uh, let's talk about sauterne in particular we've mentioned it a couple times this is a region actually it's a sub-region within bordeaux Barsoc is a sub-sub-region that is kind of like the top of Noble Rot wines in Bordeaux. But Sauterne is a Bordeaux appellation where these Noble Rot wines are made. Again, not always every year. These are Simeon, Sauvignon Blanc mixes. Simeon gives a fuller body and richness. Sauvignon Blanc gives acidity primarily to these wines. These wines do not taste like it, but they are highly acidic. 
because they are also lusciously sweet. Mm-hmm. These grapes are so raisinated when they get into the winery that there is just no way the yeast is ever going to ferment those wines. So that's where your sweetness is coming from for these wines. I would it, imagine. It needs that high acid to keep it in check because it'll just taste like you're drinking syrup otherwise. And I would imagine that part of the reason why you do have such a high cost is because of how raisinated they are. It takes so many grapes in order yeah. to produce it. And again, you have to pay really highly trained hand harvesters to do this in the first place. Mm. So. Moving out of Sauterne, though. We also have our stuff from Hungary. Yeah, we have Tokai from Hungary. This is made from the ferment grape, which is another very high acid grape. This is another one that I unfortunately have not had the pleasure of sampling myself. I Tokai, it, it's very similar in my opinion to Sauterne, but Tokai, uh, it's more... Well, A, it's on average much more expensive because it's a lot more rare. But uh, it's... I guess more refined, that's kind of the best way I can put it. It's been a while since I've had Tokai. I would need to taste it side by side from some Sauterne to really uh, give you a a better That'd be a very expensive tasting. Yes. (laughs) That might be in the future when we can maybe get some sponsors. Yeah. No, (laughs) if you want to sponsor us being able to tell you the difference between Tokai and Sauterne in in very specifics, please (laughs) feel free to do so. But yeah, so Tokai, it is very similar to Sotern, but there it is different enough. I do remember recognizing a, a difference. And again, I would call it refinement. I'm just not particularly sure how else to put it. But moving on from Tokai, we also have our Berenauslesas and our Trockenberenauslesas from Germany. These are going to be primarily Riesling wines. I've never seen one of these that isn't riesling based frankly neither have i i just don't think it's legally mandated that it be riesling i could be wrong on that i'm just not sure how you would produce it exactly because riesling again we've talked about this in the past it's high acid so it can stand up to the sweetness of these wines and these are going to be noble rot wines out of germany yeah yeah and you also have um a lot of terpenes that are specifically rose terpenes that are able to balance out a lot of those flavors and the mm-hmm. tertiary characteristics yeah you you really do want grapes that have a very highly aromatic nose for these wines because if not again, otherwise it's it just only like, registers on the palate as sweet and yeah it's, it's like drinking gross. simple syrup and nobody wants that <laughs> yeah no it's 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 not a great thing but that's the beauty of these wines is because of the fact that they are so highly aromatic aromatic you're able to get complexity without necessarily having to go into your more tannin based profiles Mm -hmm. which is kind of the appeal of these types of wines they they are very complex Mm -hmm. but they don't have the same approach to complexity that other styles of wine no these are these are much more about Again, it's really hard to describe if you've never had a Noble Rot wine because it just has a very specific character. Again, orange marmalade, it's much more on the fruity end. It's not oxidative. Although um, Sauterne does tend to be aged in some oak, if I remember correctly, but typically it's old oak mm-hmm. and it's not extensive oak aging. It's more for body and some added complexity from oxidation. Yeah. Because they actually want some of the angels portion effect to be mm-hmm. to be there. Um, yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, the angels portion is the liquid that is evaporated from the mixture while it's in the barrel. It's 
Yeah. Uh, why a lot of times with your regular wines, you're going to have them keep some of the wine itself separate in um, a carboy in order to refill it. In the case of Sauternes, although they, they um, do they even use anything in order to kind of top it off? I don't believe so. Yeah, I don't the, think you'd have enough material to begin with to really do yeah, that. They want it to concentrate. Yeah. And, and again, it's not Madeira. It's not port. You're not aging these wines extensively. It's, yeah. it's really just to add a little bit more oomph to the wine. Yeah. Because the Noble Rot is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the complexity department in this regard. And blending from Sauternes because it is two grapes. Uh, again, Simeon and Sauvignon Blanc that are adding their own characteristics into the wine. Now, unfortunately, at the end of this episode, we do not have uh, a wine that we are going to be tasting yeah. for for this. None of the wines that we just listed are particularly easy on the wallet. No, they are <laughs> so... not. Um, although we probably could go grab a port of some sort. It's just it, it, would, it would not be a very quality. It, it wouldn't port. be a high quality port. Yeah. If you're particularly interested in any of these, uh, please DM us uh, or or send us a message telling us uh, which one you would like us to be able to taste. Mm-hmm. I'm still leaning towards doing a uh, sherry tasting with some some good cheeses. Well, I think uh, that would be a good thing to explore. There's a I, – I won't say their name because we haven't tried their wares yet, but there's a new wine – or new-ish wine shop that opened up around us oh, recently. Yeah, you that, sent me a message about this. Yeah, I want to take Michael too because I've been wanting to go since they opened and I have not gotten the opportunity yet. And I do know that they have at least one sherry in stock, so I would like to visit and maybe – Yeah, uh, we should maybe, do that. Maybe give them a shout-out if we enjoy the experience. Absolutely. That yeah. might be what we do. Like I said, though, please DM us if you have any questions or if there is a a dessert wine that you've had that you've really enjoyed or one that you're curious about getting our opinion on. Yeah. But this has been an enjoyable episode. I've enjoyed talking about these wines. Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to us talk about them. Mm -hmm. But definitely give us a follow at Laid Back Lush. I've been Michael. I've been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers.